Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in anticipation of yet again another blessing from your word. Every time we open the Bible, Lord, it's an opportunity for you to bless us. Father, as we tread on sacred ground this morning, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has already rested upon this place in preparation for the blessing that you are about to impart. Now, Lord, may our hearts be in tune with the frequency of heaven. May the Spirit impress our hearts with the message right where it needs to be and applied in our lives. Thank you, Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen in our study together that the Bible describes that life is war. We have seen that there is not a wartime part of life and a non-wartime part of life, but this is a fight to the end. Yesterday, we introduced the concept that as the Bible describes life as war, we need a good leader or general to follow in this war. As we read together in our scripture reading this morning, the Bible's description of the 144,000, those people who are alive on earth during perhaps the most difficult time in earth's history. The time of great judgment, the time of the mark of the beast, the time of religious persecution such as this world has never seen, that as the Bible describes that time period of earth's history, that there is a group of people that will follow the Lamb, our great general, wherever he goes, not only in the times of peace and prosperity, not only in the times of good and blessing, but they will follow God no matter what happens in their lives. And I want to be part of that group, don't you? I want to be following the Lamb of God wherever He goes, because as we've seen in our Bible, Revelation 17 describes that the Lamb is the one who overcomes, and those who follow the Lamb will be victorious in the end. We are focusing our attention on the last 48 hours of the life of Christ in today's presentation. We're going to continue that. And I want to invite you to pay close attention to how things play out. Yesterday we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane, the war in a garden. And we found that Jesus spent that time together with His Father in prayer before He entered into that time of great battle when the the, the war would intensify. We also found that during that time, the disciples were found resting. They were sleeping instead of praying. And I want you to follow the narrative this morning as we continue to look at the story and see how things play out with Jesus as the war intensifies and with the disciples as the war intensifies. We left Jesus in our study yesterday, finishing off his prayer of submission to his heavenly Father. During this prayer, I didn't have time to get into this, but during this prayer, the angel Gabriel comes and assures him, we find in the book Desire of Ages, he assures him of his Father's acceptance. I want to suggest to you this morning that that promise, that word of comfort from the angel Gabriel, was a source of strength as Jesus went through the time of trial before he was crucified. But in the book Desire of Ages, page 694, we find these words, Christ's agony did not cease after his prayer, but his depression and discouragement left him. I want that to soak in for a minute. His agony did not cease, but what left? Depression and discouragement. The storm had in no wise abated, but he who was its object 
was strengthened to meet its fury. Listen to this. He came forth calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his blood-stained face. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus, as he comes out of the garden, before, when Jesus went into the garden, you read it in the book Desire of Ages, she says he was staggering as he came into the garden. He was moaning as the weight of the sin of the world was being pressed upon him. The prospects of being separated from his heavenly father was more than his humanity could bear. And as he clung to the earth there in the garden of Gethsemane, pleading that the cup would pass from him as his will was surrendered to his father's will, now he stands forth. He stands up in that garden. The sound of clanking armor is heading his direction as the mob come to arrest him. And he meets that mob calm. What made the change? There's one thing that happened between when Jesus entered that garden and the mob arrested him, and it was prayer. Switched, made all the difference. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that it's no different for us. When the war intensifies, and I know that the war is raging even now today, but the war, as the Bible tells us in Bible prophecy, is only going to intensify. And as that war intensifies... I know, according to the Bible, that God's people will be able to meet its fury the same way that Jesus did. Calm, serene, not depressed, not discouraged, but they will meet the storm calm because of the assurance of their Father's acceptance. Before we get too far into this, I want to suggest something to you. Did you know that the devil is studying your character? He watches what makes you tick. He knows what makes you happy. He knows what makes you sad. He knows what makes you lose your temper. He knows what makes you lose your hold on God, what discourages you and what encourages you. He knows all of that stuff. He knows your weak points. And he is devising specific ways to be able to get you or to try to get you to stumble and fall in this intense battle that we are fighting. But can I suggest something else to you? If the devil is studying your character, you think we would do well to study our character ourselves? And to find by the grace of God through the promptings of the Holy Spirit to find those weak points and to now, today, turn those weak spots into strong spots in our characters. That's what Jesus, when he met the, the, the war that was he was about to engage in here in these last 48 hours of his life, he met that war with a strong character. In fact, the Bible tells us, Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 30, write it down. The Bible says, Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. How much? Nothing. He had nothing in him. And this is why when Satan came to attack him, when Satan came to tempt him, when Satan tried to get him to fall, because Satan knew that his his, his future was hanging in the balance that this was his opportunity to take humanity with him instead of allowing Jesus to redeem fallen humanity. Satan was pouring down upon Jesus everything he could to try to get him to fall. But there was nothing of Satan in Jesus. The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And it's because of that that Jesus was able to stand in the midst of that battle. And then I find these words in the book, Great Controversy, page 623. It says this, this is the condition. She's commenting on that very verse. The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. She says, this is the condition in which those who must meet, or sorry, those which, uh, those, 
I'll start over again. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. What condition are we to be found in? The prince of this world cometh and hath what? I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but when I read things like this, I realize that there is some need for growth in my life. But the temptation, humanly, the temptation can be to become discouraged when we read things like that and say there's just no way. That's the devil talking to you. If this is God's ideal, then God will do it if you let him. This is not to be a discouragement. This is a promise that God can get you to the point, not you, but God can get you to the point where the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in you. Lord, have mercy. I want that experience in my life. That's why the Bible describes in 1 John 2 and verse 3 that when Jesus comes, we shall be like him. May God help you to find those weak spots in your character and not become discouraged by them. But but say, Lord, take this weak spot and make it a fortress against the enemy. Go with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to pick up the narrative here. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47 is where we're going to start. Jesus has just prayed his prayer of humble submission. He now comes forth to meet the angry mob. He's calm. He's serene. He's dignified. Now watch how things play out between Jesus and the disciples. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, the Bible says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staffs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Well, there's a lot packed into these few little verses here. We will not do it justice this morning, but we will touch on a few things that I believe will speak to our hearts. Even after Judas had followed Jesus for three and a half years, this is what he did. And it doesn't matter whether you are a lifelong Adventist, the third, fourth, fifth generation Adventist, it doesn't matter what it is, you are not beyond doing this to Jesus. If you're walking in your own cardboard armor, you're doing things in your own strength instead of the strength of God, you are not beyond doing what Judas did. He fell on the neck of Jesus and betrayed him with something that was to be given to a friend, a loved one, with a kiss. I ask you the question. How would you have responded if you were in Jesus' position? Somebody that you had poured your time and energy into for three and a half years. Somebody that you have prayed for in long prayer sessions, night after night. Somebody who you longed to see in the kingdom of heaven now betrays you with a kiss. How would you have responded if you were in that situation? Verse 50 tells us what Jesus did. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. The word friend in the Greek is a kindly address that is given to a good friend. A close acquaintance. Friend. I don't know about you, but somebody who's betraying me to be taken to the authorities, I wouldn't, humanly speaking, refer to that person as a friend. Are you with me this morning? 
But Jesus was looking through kind eyes. He had a different heart than what we usually have. It's interesting that as you watch this this whole thing play out, the more that Jesus is squeezed in these 48 hours, the more love comes out. Because the prince of this world cometh and had nothing in him. When Jesus was squeezed by betrayal, when Jesus was squeezed by persecution, when Jesus was squeezed by the cruel words from the angry mob, when Jesus was squeezed by the farce of a trial, when he was hung on the cross, squeezed by all of these things, all that could come out was love because that's all that was in him. And so as this trusted follower of his who was closely acquainted with him, when Jesus saw him, he said, friend. Lord, help us to have the same character of Jesus. Now, you might not think this is too important of a point to meditate on. How would you have responded if you were in that situation but my bible tells me something interesting in matthew chapter 10 and verse 36 jesus was sending out his disciples at this point we're going to get more into this text or this chapter uh, in two days it's kind of jesus ordination speech to his disciples as he was sending them out and in verse 36 jesus says this and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Let me ask you a question. As this war intensifies, are we going to find ourselves in the same position that Jesus found himself in, in the garden when Judas came and kissed him? Yes or no? Yes, we are. A man's foe shall be they of his own household. Judas came and betrayed Jesus to the authorities. We, in the last days, there will be people of our own household, those who we love, those who we cherish, those who we have had close relationships with, who will betray us. How will you respond in those situations? Well, if our church board meetings tell us anything, if our church business meetings tell us anything, If our church socials and Sabbath school classes tell us anything, there is room for growth. And brothers and sisters, this is not a growth that is going to come from within our own strength trying harder. This growth will only come as we try harder to surrender. And you know, the interesting thing to me is that you can't even surrender on your own. Because my Bible tells me in John 15 that without God, I can do nothing. And even when it comes to surrender, I need Him to coach me, to guide me in that. Unless we enter into the experience of Jesus, I believe we are in greater danger of entering into the experience of Judas. Now is our time of preparation to say, Lord, refine my character so that when Jesus comes, I am like him. That when the prince of this world cometh, he finds nothing in me. That when trials and adversity and difficulties come and squeeze me, that the love of Jesus comes out instead of the poison of sin. It's okay, you can be a good Christian when it's, time, when it's a time of peace. You can be a good Christian when everybody's speaking well about you. You can be a good Christian and have all of that love coming out of you when everything is hunky-dory. But your experience with God really shows when you are put into a vice and squeezed. When you're put in an uncomfortable position... Somebody speaks about you behind your back or criticizes you. When somebody says something to you that you take offense to. When somebody hurts you 
and does something to you that you feel you don't deserve. It's at those moments when you are squeezed that your true Christianity comes out. Unless we enter into the experience of Jesus, we are in greater danger of entering into the experience of Judas. What Jesus did in the garden when Judas came and kissed him, it was not human, it was divine. And what Judas did to Jesus in the garden was not human, it was demonic. And there will be one of two forces that will possess you in the last days. It will either be the force and the Spirit of God that will possess you 100%, or it will be the Spirit of the devil that will possess you 100%. There is no middle ground here, brothers and sisters. We don't have time to be playing around in this battle. We believe as Seventh-day Adventists that Bible prophecy tells us that Christ's coming is soon. We have been preaching this for a while. And if we really believe that Jesus is coming soon, what are we doing to allow God to create in us the character of Jesus? Well, I hope and pray that morning by morning finds you on your knees saying, Lord, not my will but thine be done. That morning by morning you, you are found praying, take me, O Lord, as holy thine. I lay all my plans at your feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me and let all my works be wrought in thee. The story continues in Luke chapter 22. In verse 49, we kind of jump around in the Gospels here to get all the details. Luke chapter 22 and verse 49, as the war intensifies, we find Jesus being squeezed. And as he is squeezed, love comes out. Notice what happens with the disciples. Verse 49, the Bible says, And when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, Shall we smite with a sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. He didn't even wait for Jesus to respond. He just went ahead and did it. And Jesus said, or Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Of course, we know this was Peter who did this, right? Impetuous Peter. Just moments before, what was Peter doing? What was he doing? And now the mob is standing all around. And what is Peter doing? You know, I find it interesting that the disciples were willing to fight for Jesus, but they weren't willing to pray with Jesus. They were willing to go out there and wield their swords and inflict bodily pain. But when it came to fighting the real battle... They were sleeping in the garden. Are we sometimes like the disciples? Alive and vibrant when there's a Bible prophecy seminar going on. Swing! People come into our Bible prophecy seminars and we hit them with Bible text after Bible text after Bible text. We have a guest who walks in off the street and we lay upon them, you know, all of these heavy texts about having a good, healthy diet and all of these heavy things before we even begin to develop a relationship with them. But when we find ourselves in the morning, we're busy sleeping instead of praying. I find it interesting that the disciples were willing to fight for Jesus, but they weren't willing to pray with Him. When Jesus told Peter, suffer ye thus far, and undid what Peter did. Was that a rebuke to him? Peter thought that he was protecting his Messiah. This, this had to be a good thing. He was protecting him bodily. Don't you dare lay your hand upon my Messiah. Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is not the way we go about things here on this earth. He said, Peter, put that sword away. Put his hand on the head of that young man. 
and gave him a brand new ear that probably hurt better than the other one. What happens when you rebuke a proud person? Have you ever had that happen to you? Somebody rebuked you and your, your pride kind of rises up in your heart. You want to respond in a human way. When a proud person is rebuked, they become offended. And although the Bible doesn't explicitly state it, I believe it is definitely alluded to in the book Desire of Ages, page 697. The Bible, or the Spirit of Prophecy says, in their indignation and fear, Peter proposed that they save themselves. Is there such a thing? Following this suggestion, what did they do? They forsook him and fled. Whose suggestion was it? The man who was rebuked. I find it interesting that it was Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, who led the mob to betray Jesus. And it was Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who led the rest of the disciples to flee and forsake Jesus. Don't you find that interesting? You see how this narrative is playing out? What was the difference? Yesterday we looked at this. In the life of Jesus, what made the difference for him? How could he come out calm and serene? He spent time in prayer and he also studied the word of God. He knew from Bible prophecy that this was going to happen. He had informed himself from the word of God. And then he had surrendered himself to his father's will in prayer. Whereas the disciples had their fabricated idea of theology that Jesus was going to establish his earthly kingdom. They did not base their understanding on a clear, thus saith the Lord. Neither did they bathe it in prayer. And you see the narrative playing out here. As Jesus comes out based on the Bible and in prayer, he comes out calm, ready to meet the mob with the love of Jesus. The disciples, on the other hand, when they meet the mob, they are weak and quickly defeated. Do you see how fast they were defeated? Just boom, just like that, they all forsake him. Within moments, within minutes, they're all fleeing away. And there Jesus stands, all by himself. As we look at the story of Peter cutting off the servant of the high priest's ear, the Lord speaks to me and says, Jason, if you are not as Jesus, you will inflict pain in the lives of other people. That is unnecessary. And Jesus will have to come behind you and heal that pain. I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. That's why we today need to say, Lord, give me the experience of Jesus. Because when that war comes, I want to be like a martial arts expert that knows exactly how to respond in the situation. That it's not my human flesh that comes out, but it's divine love that comes out. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, brothers and sisters. But they are mighty to God. The pulling down of strongholds. Judas led the mob that betrayed Jesus, Peter led the disciples to flee away from Jesus. And John 16 and verse 32 is fulfilled. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. But I like the last part of the verse. And yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Yesterday we were talking about how Jesus had his own individual experience. He was not dependent upon the support of human people. Humanity to support his spiritual experience. He could stand in his relationship with his God, in his, with his Father, in his own strength. Just him and God. 
He didn't need earthly supports. When all of those earthly supports were cut out from underneath him, it did not change his relationship with God one iota. And I find it interesting that Jesus is, it's almost like he's reaching out with the hand of faith that even though he begins to feel his father separating from him because the sin of the world is being placed upon him, he still by faith understands that his father hath not left him alone. The Lord is walking with us. And in fact, Ellen White tells us that even though there was darkness that covered Calvary's hill, when Jesus hung on the cross, the Father was right there, behind, right, right, right there beside His Son. At the time that Jesus felt like His Father was the farthest away, His Father was the closest. And there's a lesson for us to learn there. Go with me in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to pick it up in verse 57 as we continue the story. We can clearly see that Bible study and prayer have a direct impact on how we fight in the spiritual war. But notice how this impacts other people as they observe us in the middle of war. This is Friday morning. Jesus has gone all night without any sleep, without any sustenance, being dragged from the garden to Annas' trial, who was the previous high priest. And now as the early morning hours come, he stands before Caiaphas, the current high priest. Caiaphas, we're told in the book Desire of Ages, was an unscrupulous man. This was an opportunity that he had been waiting for, for Jesus' entire ministry, to bring Jesus to the point of execution. And he was not going to let this opportunity pass him by. The Bible tells us this in verse 57. And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off the high, to, uh, unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him unto death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God. And to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it with these witness, what is it which these witness against thee? Listen carefully to these words from the book Desire of Ages, page 704. As Caiaphas looked upon the prisoner, he was struck with admiration. He was struck with admiration for, the, for his noble and dignified bearing. Listen to this. A conviction came over him that this man was akin to God. The next instant, he scornfully banished the thought. This is outstanding to me. Jesus had gone all night without sleeping. And I don't know about you, but when I go through a night without sleeping, I'm not really worth looking at. My patience is usually not at its finest. My mind is usually not at its sharpest. Jesus had just gone through an intense battle in the garden, surrendering His will to the Heavenly Father. His face was stained with blood. His skin was sensitive from that experience of sweating great drops of blood. He had gone through this whole experience and now he stands before Caiaphas and all Caiaphas has to do is look at Jesus and he falls under conviction. Not a word was spoken at this point and Caiaphas is convicted. I don't know about you. 
but I want that type of power in my life. Too often, I believe that we try to be witnesses through manipulation, through guilt. But I pray that God would give us the Holy Spirit in our lives that all people have to do is look at us and they fall under conviction. The silent witness. Now, I'm not saying that you should not use your mouth because you should. And we will find that Jesus does this. But Jesus was so filled with the Holy Spirit. He was so filled with God that people could look at him and see and fall under conviction of the, of the Holy Spirit. May God give us that silent witness. Notice this, Desire of Ages, page 705, she continues. She says, the people, now we're going from Caiaphas to the people now. The people compared the excited, malignant deportment of Ananias or Annas and Caiaphas and with the calm, majestic bearing of Jesus. Even in the midst of that hardened multitude arose the question, is this man of God-like presence to be condemned as a criminal? Caiaphas begins to see that the crowd is being affected by Jesus' presence. And you'll find that as you, as you follow the story, we won't have time to do this this week, but you can go back and look at it. As you follow the story from the garden all the way through to Christ's crucifixion, as you follow the story, wherever Jesus goes, He brings conviction just by His presence. You actually find that as you get closer and closer to Calvary's cross, Jesus speaks less and less, but his presence still brings great conviction. I want that experience. I pray for that experience. So they bring in two false witnesses, and as these false witnesses uh, begin to talk, the more they talk, the more they contradict one another. Until Mark tells us in his gospel, neither so did their witness agree together. And all during this, Jesus stands silent. How? When you're being falsely accused, what do you usually want to do? But wait, let me tell you how it really happened. Right? We want to defend ourselves. Jesus just stands back and he lets the Holy Spirit do the work. We pick up the story continuing here in verse 30, uh, 63. And Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Uh, but behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then they did spit in his face and buffet him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who it is. That smote thee. Caiaphas adjures Jesus by the living God. He can't keep silent at that point any longer. He says, Caiaphas, yes, I am the Son of God, and you will see me come in the clouds of heaven one day. When Caiaphas hears this, he rents he tears his clothes. He breaks the law of the Old Testament. The high priest was never to rend his garment. And then he proceeds to use his influence to persuade the crowd. You see, in the Jewish system of law, the high priest would not give his sentence unless he influence other people to follow his direction. He would wait until the other people had an opportunity in the Sanhedrin to come to their conclusion. The Caiaphas cannot let this opportunity pass him by. He must secure the condemnation of Jesus. And so he throws his influence in. Desire of Ages, page 710, 
says this, the ignorant rabble had seen the cruelty with which he was treated before the council. And from this they took license to manifest all the satanic elements of their nature. Christ's very nobility, don't miss this brothers and sisters, and God-like bearing goaded them to madness. His meekness, His innocence, His majestic patience filled them with hatred born of Satan. Mercy and justice were trampled upon. Never was a criminal treated in so inhumane a manner as was the Son of God. Yet as He was squeezed, what came out? Love. Because the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in him. You know, as we get closer and closer to the end and this war intensifies, I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. When God creates in you the character of Jesus, that very character will goad the ungodly to, uh, to satanic madness. And they will heap upon you what they heaped upon Jesus. And it will only be that relationship with God that you have developed in Bible study and prayer each morning that will sustain you during that time. It will only be that daily walking with the Lord, sensing His presence, learning how He speaks and communicates with you. It will only be that relationship with God that will sustain you when everybody is against you. Well, Jesus stood there in Caiaphas' palace being yelled at, mistreated, and abused by religious people. You know, this wasn't just the ungodly. This wasn't just the unchristian people. These were religious leaders and the Jewish nation that were mistreating the Son of God, physically mistreating Him. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. I have people come to me many times and say that such and such a leader did this to me and such and such a leader did that to me. This pastor said this to me. This pastor said that to me. And this is why I'm at where I'm at. But I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. If your relationship with God is that shallow that a minister or a religious leader can cause you to let go of your hold on God, Something is wrong with your spiritual experience. And you need to get in your prayer closet and not get out until you fix that problem. Listen, I'm not making an excuse for religious people to do mean things to other people. But the reality of it is, according to the story of Jesus, this stuff is going to happen. We need a deep relationship with God that no matter who does whatever to us, We will never be tempted to let go of our hold upon Jesus. Even if it's high-ranking church officials, God forbid that this ever happens. Pray for your leaders because they're under tremendous stress and pressure. That you would never relinquish your hold upon God. And as we look at Jesus going through these trials, being mistreated by the high priest... Physically, still holds on to his daddy's hands. Won't let go of that death grip of his father's hand. Why? Because Jesus knew his heavenly father. He knew his father. He had developed this relationship. He knew his father so intimately that his father would walk with him as he went through This experience. That although all earthly supports were pulled out from underneath him, his father was still with him. Listen to me carefully. We're wrapping this thing up. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32. Just jot it down for the sake of time. The Bible says this. The people that do know their God. The people that what? will be strong. 
and do exploits, which are deeds that are exceedingly brilliant and heroic. The people that, what? Will be, what? How was Jesus strong in the midst of this trial? He was strong because he knew his God. He knew his heavenly Father. He had walked with him. He had talked with him. He had experienced him on a daily basis. And that strength sustained him. That knowing of God sustained him in that dark hour. What does the Bible say? And this is life eternal, that they might know thee. I find it interesting the Bible doesn't say that they might know 28 fundamental beliefs. And I always have to put the disclaimer in there, we need Bible doctrine. I'm not saying that we need to throw out Bible doctrine and just have a relationship with with God. We need both. But I think we have fallen into the trap of Adventism that as long as we're good on the 28, we're good for heaven. No. We need the 28 and we need to be searching for more biblical doctrine in the Bible that is biblically based. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't the doctrine that sustained Jesus during that time. It was knowing his Father. It's strength, that strength that will sustain us in the last days is knowing our Heavenly Father. They shall be strong and do exploits who know God. Once had somebody come up to me, leader in our church, one of our churches, and asked the question, what does it mean to know God? Maybe you're asking that same question, but perhaps are embarrassed to ask it. So I give you a few quick references here on the screen for you to meditate upon. I'm just going to read these one-liners very quickly. This is not a complicated thing. It's very simple to understand. We are told that to know God is to love Him. Desire of Ages, page 22. To know God is to trust Him fully. This day with God, page 316. To know God is eternal life. To know God is to be one with Him in heart and mind. I like that one. It's not complicated stuff. Think about it in terms of your relationship with your spouse or with your children, you know them by spending time with them, by talking with them, by doing things with them, by going places with them, by developing a relationship with them. That's how you know somebody. Christ Object Lessons, page 354, says this, the value of a man is estimated in heaven according to, his capacity, according to the capacity of his heart to know God. This knowledge is the spring from which flows all power. Our time is coming to a close, and so I ask you the question, how well do you know God? Now, I'm with you on this one, friends. Please don't feel like I'm preaching down at you. Because this sermon preached to me before it preached to you. My heart burns within me to know God more intimately. And I want this experience with Jesus, this experience of Jesus with all of my heart. As I trace these last 48 hours of the life of Christ, I see the perils of neglecting Bible study and prayer played out in the life of the disciples. But I praise God that God gave them a second chance. And I see the success of Bible study and prayer play out in the life of Jesus. And I say, God, I don't want to make the the, the, the mistake of the disciples. I want to learn from the life of Jesus and follow his example. Because I might not get a second chance when this battle intensifies and the mark of the beast is enforced and all of these calamities begin to take place in the last days. I want to know my God. Walk with Him. 
and hold on to his hand and never let it go, no matter what this earth may bring my, my way. I don't know what's going to happen to you when you leave Michigan Conference camp meeting. You may go on to live another 30 or 40 or 50 years. Praise God. But your life might be a whole lot shorter. We've had these type of events where we come and have these spiritual highs and then on the way home somebody dies. We don't pray for that. But it might happen. How well do you know God? Is that the most important thing in your life? Would you like to say this morning, Father, I want to know you as Jesus knew you. That's your desire. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we have a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, we stand before you this morning. Asking you for help. Lord, we recognize our weakness. Our tendency is to gain knowledge in worldly things and not a knowledge of God. Father, we stand before you this morning saying that needs to come to an end. And we are asking you, Lord, to help us to gain the deep experience of knowing God the way Jesus knew His Heavenly Father. And that that knowledge of You will give us strength and sustain us as the war continues to intensify in our lives. Lord, we recognize we are weak. But we also understand that that's a good thing. Because when we are weak, then you can make us strong in your strength. Oh, Father, give us this experience. We crave it. And we thank you that you are more willing to give it to us than we are to receive it. May you guide us, Lord, as we go from this place of worship throughout the day. Give us sharp minds. Learn what you have in store for us from the other speakers. Give us kind words in our mouth, Lord. Let us look for ways to show the love of Jesus. And when we are tested today, Father, to respond in a carnal way, May you give us the, the strength to respond the way Jesus would. We thank you, Father. We place our life in your hands this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless each one of you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.